You can take your seats. Man, you guys served us so well tonight. Thank you so much. I felt like we were interrupting a bit of a holy moment there, to be honest. Um, and so we equally could have uh, kept going. So thank you so much for serving us. I really appreciate um, that. Good evening, everybody. Um, what a joy and what a privilege it is for me to be able to be here. As has been hinted at already, and as you may detect from my accent, I'm not from around here. Um, this is how everyone in the western suburbs of Austin, Texas speaks now. Um, that's how pretentious that city has got. We have all adopted this accent. It's actually how we cope with our sense of loss um, over and our longing for the days when the University of Texas were competitive. Um, I've just been walking around the office um, uh, this week in Austin just saying, roll tide, roll tide. Um, and just watching Austinites dive away in fear um, because that's what you guys have created in them. There's a lot of trauma um, that they're going to need some help to be able to overcome. A little bit about me. Um, I was born and raised in the big, bad, beautiful, magnificent African city of Johannesburg. If you haven't been um, to Africa or maybe if you've been to some parts of Central Africa, I know it might be quite hard for you to visualize kind of cities, but if you've seen Black Panther, it's exactly like that. Um, and so Johannesburg is a big city, it's somewhere between 4 million and 8 million people, depending how you measure the metro. Um, but that's where I was born and raised. I lived through the dying breaths of apartheid um, and had uh, two parents who were bivocational uh, leaders of a multicultural church when it was illegal uh, for them to be so. And for gatherings of, multi of, of different races, that was illegal. We'd have the cops raid our church services um, all the time. Um, and it, the building looked a lot like this. And so I've just been sitting here kind of filled with nostalgia um, because I spent so much time on the floor of a church building a lot like this. My parents, uh, the church that they were part of, didn't believe in kids' ministry. They believed that families had to be discipled together. And so as I sat in these pews tonight, I was like, man, I have slept under pews like this. <laughs> so much, um, especially at idiotic things like Friday night conferences <laughs> where some guy you don't know and didn't invite is going to come speak for two 45-minute sessions. I've got no idea how you're going to make that, um, and I'm very glad that the lighting is as it is because if you're not off, I'll have no idea, and I'll go home um, content, and Sue will ask, how did I do, and I'll go like, I think I did great, um, and so... Praise the Lord uh, for that. Uh, I, I grew up in a wonderful Christian home uh, with five children. Uh, my parents were radically committed to Christian hospitality. And so every Sunday of my childhood, I can remember more than 30 people at our dining room table. Um, after my dad, who had worked 50 hours at, a, at his job, then preached and eldered in that church, and anyone who was new at the church were invited to lunch at the Lester household. Um, and so I've seen uh, hospitality and community in action. When I um, got through high school, my parents moved away to the metropolis of Boise, Idaho, um, which I'm told had nothing to do with tax. Um, 
but for some reason, that's where they wanted to go. Um, and so they moved there, and my brother and I moved into a commune uh, near the, the, the University of Johannesburg where we explored a music career. And I ran away from the church um, trying to be a musician, but God drew me back. Um, and in that season, um, I started to seriously date uh, the love of my life. And so there'll be some pictures of my really important people. Um, that's Sue. Uh, we met in high school. When we met, I was a bad believer, and she wasn't a believer. And so we tried to date, and lo and behold, it did not work. Um, we broke up. Then we tried to date again. At that stage, she was a passionate believer, and I wasn't. Um, and lo and behold, it didn't work. Third time was the charm. Um, and we got it together. And there's my two little miracle children. So Daniel, who's just uh, turned nine. Um, so this was a year ago, so he's a bit bigger than that now. Not, not a lot bigger. Um, and he has the complexion of 2% milk. Um, he's, he's like Casper the Friendly Ghost, this little guy, he's, uh, he's amazing, and that's little Katie Faith. We, we, we waited a long time for both of them, and so they're both our little miracle children, and we're so, so grateful um, for them. I've been in ministry for 15 years, and I've had the tremendous privilege of ministering in and around churches all over the globe. God has been very kind to me. Um, and so when um, a church like, and churches like these invite me to come to Alabama, it's my first time in the States, I'm like, yeah, is it a local church? Are we going to open the Bible? Yes, I'm there. All right, let's go. Let's do this thing um, because I love the church. I really do. And I love serving the church. And so it's my tremendous privilege uh, to be here. I have seen so much of the same thing in a variety of contexts in almost every country where I have ministered. I've seen that Christian people who have grown up particularly around churches have a deep desire for genuine Christian community, but they don't know how to live it out. They've just got no idea how to live it out. And they'll read hints of it in the scriptures and they'll go like, there it is, there it is. And then when we lay our lives over those examples that we have from the scripture, we go like, yeah, there, there it ain't, there it ain't. This is a different thing that we've invented called Christendom and Christian culture, which is very different often than the church that God gave us. And so over the next four sessions, I want to really spur in your hearts a desire for greater community. I'm not going to tell you how to do it because I do not know. But I'm going to open the Bible, I'm going to tell us some stories, I'm going to hope to inspire you so that you guys will figure it out. And so that you won't waste your life in some kind of shallow pool of Christendom, rather you would live as a community of Christ followers who will radically change the community around you because that's how, what Christ followers are supposed to do. Because the kingdom of God is at hand, friends. It's not pie in the sky when you die. It's here. It's near. It's evident. It's tangible. It's in our midst. The king is on his throne. His spirit is in the church. And the gates of hell, <laughs> last time I checked, do not prevail against what? Christendom? No. Against the church, right? The church is God's established means through which he will reach the world. And it's the way through which he wants to proclaim the gospel. And so I'm passionate about Christian community. Here's where we'll go over the next four sessions. God willing, any of this could change. Because I was sitting at dinner going, this is dumb. Um, because <laughs> seriously, as I was sitting at dinner, I was going like, you guys do communi community better than most of the places I've been in. Um, and so this might just be like, yeah, we got that. Tick, Brandon, you don't get to choose who comes next time, all right? Um, and so that might be the outcome, and that's a good outcome, right? Then at least we know Brandon's a dad at picking speakers. Like, that, 
That's success. That's one measurable, all right? But, but uh, let's see where we go. Maybe we'll change it overnight. We'll see what happens tonight. But here, here's where I intend to go. Firstly, tonight for the first little while, I want to just talk about how community, Christian community, is actually natural, that we're actually made for it, that we have this longing for it in us because it's what God intended for us, right? Then later on, we'll take a little break. You'll stretch your legs. Some of you will go home. Some of you um, will stay, and we'll look at how community is necessary, that it isn't just natural, we aren't just made for it. It is necessary, it is made for us. That God actually accomplishes some stuff through community in us that, that he wouldn't accomplish in us if we didn't do it right. And part of why so much of the American church is experiencing so little fruit at making disciples and maturing disciples is because people don't do this. And they're missing out on the discipleship opportunity that God has for them because they're living as isolated individuals within a broader system that they have come to know as the church. Tomorrow morning, um, for those who are bold, um, there will be donuts and coffee. Um, but the price tag of the donuts and the coffee is that we'll have two more sessions. Um, and we'll talk um, briefly tomorrow um, uh, about how community requires a unity that's beyond uniformity. Right? That something's going to have to hold this together. Because people, and let, let, me get, let me give away the ending. People are annoying. <laughs> and deeply disappointing. Haven't you discovered that? Right? I think I should get to know them. And you do. And you're like, nope. All right? Like, I, I shouldn't have done that. Um, and so how are we going to stay together in the midst of all the ways that we sin together? Uh, what I'm going to say is what we tend to do is we just shoot for uniformity. Well, if I just hang out with people from my generation, with my melanin tone, um, with my socioeconomic standing, who support my teams, who think the same way as me, that will create unity. No, it just creates uniformity. There's something greater that God calls us to. And then we'll finish tomorrow um, with a Christian view of friendship. Because at the center of this is really going to be a Christ-focused view of friendship. That's what's going to hold communities together. We're going to need to learn to be the best friends in the world. I'm disappointed to tell you that in all my research, one of the most underpublished topics in Christian history is friendship. <laughs> and yet it's one of the ways we're told to view and understand that God views us, that Jesus is our friend, and that we're called to be supernatural friends to one another. And so I want to flesh that out a little bit together, and then I'll be out of your hair. Um, and uh, hopefully next time I return, it'll be for a football game. Let's set some expectations briefly because uh, mismatched expectations are at the core of most unhappiness. We were speaking about this at lunch today um, over wings. So the wings met expectations. Um, uh, but you know in relationships, most of the time, um, when there's friction, it's because you expected something and somebody didn't deliver. So I'm gonna set really low expectations and then you guys will go home satisfied. Um, you're, you're welcome, all right? Uh, I am no thought leader on community life. I am no leadership guru, gosh no. And so my input will be primarily inspirational and theological. I'm a Bible guy, I'm a local church pastor. I'm gonna do what a pastor does. I'm gonna open the Bible. We're gonna look through some passages that you already know. I'm not here to give you how-to answers. That's Brandon's job and other leaders' jobs afterwards. I'm gonna drive out I want to impulses, right? And so my hope is to light a fire and then see. Either it burns the place down or it warms some hearts, okay? Um, and, and that's my desire. I'm a pastor, I'm not a pragmatist, I'm a Bible teacher, I'm not a consultant. Um, and so I hope and pray that God will take some of the impulses we create over the next day and drive you all to creative solutions and how you can be the best churches ever in the way that you live out community. Le let me tell you this. There is no singular mode of effective community in the scriptures. Do you know that? 
There's no one thing that says, okay, and then you've got to gather in groups that size, then you've got to gather in groups that size, and then you've got to gather in groups that size. I mean, I see people say, well, Jesus had like 120 in the broader group, and then he had 12, and then he had three. And I go like, well, how well did the 12 work? Should we shoot for 11? Because, <laughs> uh, I mean, you know, um, and the three, well, they were pretty annoying most of the time. Read the account of the transfiguration. They, they, they witness uh, Christ in his glory, and they're like, can we be the leaders? Can we be in charge? Um, uh, and so those are just ideas, right? That it might be that those should be the group sizes. That might be wisdom. But there is actually no one thing in Scripture that says, here's what you have to do. There are principles of biblical community um, that we have to live out. And there's some, some examples that work and some that don't. We are told to be together, but we're not necessarily given the form in detail. I have seen vastly different things work in a variety of contexts. And I've seen mega churches then try to supplant their methodologies upon other churches, and they haven't worked at all. Um, and so that's not the idea. There's going to be nothing new. I don't anticipate any aha moments. I'm not Oprah, I'm not even close. But we will walk through some very familiar texts, and that's all. I'm a simple guy with simple ideas, but I'm hoping to start a fire in your heart. We'll have some breaks. We'll have some Q&A if we get some time. Right? We'll try to keep those Q&A to the topic at hand. If you have some questions on eschatology, for instance, or on the upcoming election, um, I'll probably point you towards one of your leaders. Um, uh, but if you've got some questions on church life and community and discipleship, and that would be the benefit for all of us, I'd love to do that. And then you'll also you'll see tonight, I'm, I'm big in let's stop and reflect and let's apply. And so I'm going to give you some moments to pray together, to uh, confess sin together, uh, to ask some questions together and to wrestle through some things together. And I'm hoping that by hook or by crook, God will get us there. I hope to serve you humbly and faithfully and to leave you wanting more. That's my prayer. Okay? So as I was praying at my desk last night, uh, cursing Brandon for the fact that I had a 635 flight um, on Southwest Airlines this morning. Um, I was cursing both of those things. Uh, 635 on Southwest. Uh, first world problems, I know. But I was like, Lord, why? Why did Brandon come into my life? <laughs> just why? Just, if you want to return tonight, I'm chilled with that. Just, just chilled. But I was praying. And here was my prayer, genuinely, genuinely. And, and I was praying this uh, even on the plane today. Again, why? Um, but uh, I, I, was, I was praying, Lord, these people don't need me. <laughs> um, I don't know what I'm doing in a way that will help them practically. Please, God, work through your spirit and do something that none of us expect. And so to that end, can we pray? Can we pause? You're coming out of a busy week. It's Friday night. You should be in your sweats on the couch with a beverage of your choice in your hand, eating carbohydrates. That's what, that's what you should be doing right now in Jesus' name, right? And you're here, um, and, and I'm praying I'll make the most of your time. Why don't you quieten your hearts for a second and ask God to speak to you. You know that he can and does do that, that he speaks to his saints. And so I want you to say, Lord, just over the next day, won't you just, won't you stir something fresh? And I just want you to speak to us. I'll pray in a moment and we'll get going. that I time and time again pursue a life of comfort 
over a lack of Christian community and discipleship forgive me I'm a selfish man on my best day but Lord your scripture is clear and the way you have made us is clear that you have made us for one another to do life together to know one another to serve one another to forgive one another to be long suffering and encouraging with one another so God, I pray that you would press people back into that vision, back into that dream. Thank you for the, the warmth and the love I've seen in this room already. I praise you for that. And I pray that you would stir that up to even more, to even more. But there's some in this room tonight who are tired, kind of tired of church. They're thinking this is just one more thing they've got to do. Lord, I pray that you would give them a better vision for their lives. pray Holy Spirit that you would meet with us and that you would say what do you really want to say I have bad ideas you have good ones Father so I pray that through your spirit you speak to your people in Jesus name amen all right, if you have your Bible, let's start at the beginning. Let's go from Genesis 1. Um, if you're worried, I won't make my way quite through the whole thing, um, although actually I will. I'm going to give you a biblical theology um, of community, but we won't read the whole thing. Um, I love the language of the Genesis creation account poem, right? Now, don't, don't freak out. It is a poem. It helps that we know that Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 is written in poetic form. It is written with a rhyme scheme. It is written with flow. It is written with rhythm and pentameter. Um, and it tells us all that we need to know and never tries to tell us stuff that we don't. I tell you that because I think we have butchered Genesis 1 and 2, made it something wooden that it was never supposed to be. And as a result, we end up in tension with it when actually it is there designed to sing to us of the beauty of God and of the magnificence of his creation, the pinnacle of which is mankind made in his own image. Now listen, before you tweet it out, I don't know if tweeting's a thing in Alabama, I hope it hasn't got you yet, but um, it's, uh, it's okay, can we joke with each other? No, okay, no, more UT jokes, those were good. Um, and so, um, <laughs> but don't tweet out that I'm saying I don't believe the creation accounts to be true, I never said that. Things can be poetic and true at the same time. Did you ever study the war poetry of Wilfred Owen? Duque et decorum est, all right, when he speaks of um, the, the horrors of trench warfare in World War I. Go, go read those poems. They are true to the word and they are beautifully told, right? And so we put creativity and truth against each other. That, that's not supposed to be the case. And so the, the, the creation account is 100% true. And it is beautifully told in poetic form and where we jump into the song god has brought order out of chaos he has brought something out of nothing beauty out of formlessness he has been speaking and singing creation into being and then the writer captures his creation of the human um, of the first image bearer look carefully at the language genesis 1 26 he says then god said all right now i've made this a little bit easier for you i've highlighted um, which uh, Revelation tells us we're not allowed to do. But, but there we go. This is not adding to the text. Uh, I'm just trying to draw some words out for you, right? Because this is important. Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. They will rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, the livestock, the whole earth, and the creatures that crawl on the earth. I love that, um, that verse. It makes a surf and turf a, a, a reality. So God created man in his own image. He created him in the image of God. He created them, male and 
females. Anything jump out at you? It's okay. There's no dumb answers what, what well they are. But we, uh, we're in Christian community, so we won't shame you. Anyone, anything jump out at anybody that anyone wants to shout out? Plural pl pronouns. I couldn't have put it better myself, right? Plurality in the pronouns, right? In the people, what is it? They, them, male and female. But also in God, us, our, right? Now, the mystery of the Trinity is this. God is one, eternally one. But in his oneness, there is an ongoing dance in the Trinitarian Godhead, a union, a perfect eternal relationship between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Do you understand it? I don't, all right? And so don't try to pretend you do. It's like a tricycle. No, it's not. It's like water, ice, and getting. No, it's not, all right? Everyone who's tried to define the Trinity has ended up committing a heresy of some sort of um, a great atrocity. This is why we had all of the church councils, because every time someone tried, you're like, nope, now we've got to set you on fire, all right? And so, uh, and, and so be careful with this. We should just step back and enjoy the mystery of that. It's a magnificent image. Listen to me carefully. God is one, and that oneness of God is experienced in its fullness in a community of eternal, equal, marvelous relationship. And then he creates us in part to reflect the community that he is in himself. There is, listen to this, I'll put this on the screen. There is a community and a complementarity that is necessary in order for us to be proper image bearers of the divine. I'll say that again, because if I said that in an African-American church, people would be standing, waving flags, I'd be carried aloft out the back, because that is something that we ought to need to think about. You folks are like, mm-hmm, that's interesting. Um, uh, oh, that, that's, that's interesting, all right? There is a community and a complementarity that is necessary in order for us to be proper image bearers of the divine. We need community and we need complementarity. We need others around us and those others who are around us need to be like us but also not like us in order for us to both experience and reflect the divine imprint that is placed uniquely on and breathed uniquely in image bearers of God. Friends, this helps us to understand why we are the way we are. This speaks of the deep need that is in us to be in relationship with other people. It's probably the thing that causes us the most stress, the most anxiety, and the most joy in all of our life. We want to know and be known. We want to love and be loved. We want to be with other people. Now, you might be introverted. You go like, not me. I am introverted, capital I introverted, right? And so this is my happy space. When we have to have a conversation afterwards, you'll find a whole different dude, right? It's just because I'm terrified. I'm not rude. I'm just like, I want to die. Um, and so, um, and that's not about you. That's about me, right? Because I'm introverted. It, it drains me. But even extreme introverts, I've learned this through myself and through others, even when I'm feeling my most introverted, you know what I want to be? Alone with other people. That's what an introvert desires. Still wants to be known, still wants to be seen, still wants to be understood, still wants to be accepted, still wants to be amongst other people, just doesn't want to chit-chat, right? 
And so whether you're extroverted or introverted, it doesn't change the fact that you're designed for community and you have a longing to be in it. This is why solitary confinement is such a cruel and unusual punishment, right? What's the worst way we can punish someone? Put them on their own for a prolonged period of time. The, the, the mind goes mad. The soul goes mad. Why? We're not made for it. So look at this. This hint in Genesis 1 becomes explicit in Genesis 2 when the account digs into this in a little more detail. Go to Genesis 2, 15 with me. Then the Lord God took the man and placed him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to watch over it. And so friends, I'm no major theological scholar, but so far as I can understand, fellas, yard work is pre-fall, right? And so it's just something that we have to do. Um, it's not even a result of the curse. It's just been there from the beginning. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free. Isn't this our God? First command he gives him, you are free. You are free. Look at all that you have. Look at my abundant blessing. You're free to eat of any tree of the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For on the day that you eat from it, you will certainly die. Then the Lord God said, now just stop for a second. There's a rhythm and a flow and a rhyme scheme and a structure to Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. And there's been a repeat Hebrew word that I don't expect you to understand, uh, to know or understand, that I don't fully know or understand. But when someone showed this to me, it came alive, right? God has been saying everything in creation has been good up until this part. And the recorder of that has recorded that in a, in a distinct pattern so that it's punctuating the text. The word is tov, T-O-V, right? Tov, tov, tov. Picture God, if you like, singing creation into being. And everything he looks at, he goes, tov, right? Flat-billed platypus, tov, marvelous. Niagara Falls, tov, brilliant, right? And so there's tov, 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 tov. And so it becomes this predictable thing that, that little Hebrew kids would hear this account and shout out, tov, you know what's coming, you know what's coming. And then comes in, it is not good. This is dramatic irony. It's there to, to jolt the reader and to go, wait, what? The first thing in all of this world that isn't good, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper corresponding to him. Now, I've used the CSB there deliberately, and I'll explain why in a second. The ESV says a helper suitable, I think, for him, um, or fit for him. Some of the other translations said. But remember that we said we need community, we need complementarity in order to reflect and fulfill God's good desire and, and all that he has for us. The word here for corresponding helper is a word that has plagued the translators for centuries. Why? It's a word that's a paradox in and of itself. It speaks of something that is like and against at the exact same time. And so God's looked at everything, and everything's brilliant except a dude on his own. Amen? Right? God's like, there's no, no, no good. Right? No good. And, and the word that he uses for not good there is actually saying this is beneath, beneath good. Uh, the, these other things are up on this plane, a man isolated, a person isolated without community and without complementarity that is beneath the goodness that God has designed for the universe. And so what does he need? He needs a helper. Now, ladies, don't freak out, right? Okay, this is a position of need, not a position of authority. Isn't that astonishing? He needs a helper. Amen. Amen, right? If you've met a man, you're like, 
Yes, all right? And so this is not God saying, I'm going to make something beneath. This is him saying, that's not going to work, right? He's going to need help. And the word there for helper is parakletos in the Septuagint, which is the same word that speaks of the Holy Spirit, right? Right throughout scriptures. And ladies, I'm not saying your job is the job of the Holy Spirit. I'm just saying, don't be kind of offended by that word. I will make a helper suitable or corresponding to him like against. He needs something that is like a corresponding puzzle piece that looks like him to make up a whole picture, but is against him so that, that, that the whole thing will fit. It's an unbelievable, beautiful, poetic form. And then God sits back and is like, now this is good. Now this is good. The text actually goes on to say, for Adam, no other suitable helper was found. Thank goodness, right? They actually scoured. They actually looked. Goat? Like, all right. <laughs> <laughs> I just like to try and imagine the scene. And God's like, all right, how about a naked lady? He's like, now we're talking. All right, this is, yes. Tov, 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 right? This is, I'm, 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 I like this. I like this. And so, friends, what we need for flourishing that's bordering on Edenic is that we need people like against us. Image bearers who aren't like us so that we can fulfill our great mandate and purpose in the world. So listen, let me break this down to some practicality for a second. Some other people aren't like you, not just because of their annoying rebellion. That's in there for sure. But perhaps some other people aren't like you by God's good design for you. What an incredible thing to consider. Just think about this in the spheres of your life. If you're married, are they like this? For you're good. They're not like you because if they were like you, that would be more of you. And you're not great, right? Like, th this is an incredible thing to consider. Uh, in your families, why are my in-laws like that? I mean, I've got, I've got a, a few reasons, uh, some thoughts on this. But, but, but for our good, your family, your friendships, your co-workers, people in your church, your fellow citizens of this great land. God designs complementarity into community in the system for our own flourishing. The differences that people have from us and with us aren't necessarily bad things. Part of it will be from sin to be sure, but as a principle, a lot of it is necessary in order for us to flourish as image bearers in the ways that we wouldn't without it. Now listen, let me stop here for a sec. I don't know if this is necessary in this room. This is necessary in this room. The text here doesn't say nor imply that it is not good for a person to be single. That's not what it says. And that's not what it implies. The Bible actually tells us the opposite. You know, Paul has the ultimate view of singleness. Have you read 1 Corinthians 7? People are like, marriage is the highest form of human happiness. Paul's like, look, if you have to get married, but I really wish you wouldn't, right? That's Paul's encouragement. I use that at weddings all the time. People are like, what the? That's my strategy, to not get invited to do more weddings, right? But it's, it's not working, but use it. It's very, very helpful. People are like, this guy's the worst. Um, but, but in Scripture, singleness is actually elevated to a life of importance in the church. What does the life of Jesus teach us? The most fulfilled person who ever lived was single, right? But in community, with complementarity, 
takes 12 of his closest friends on a three-year camping trip, right? Because as part of his, his experience in the incarnation of reflecting divine image bearing in a powerful way to the world. But he didn't need to be married in order to do it, but he did need to be in community in order to do it. The scripture says aloneness is not good. Isolation is not good. And some people in here are married and alone in a family and isolated. The scripture says separation from like against relationship with others, that's not good. It's insufficient in terms of our ability to reflect, to reflect the God who made us. Friends, this need, this ache, this longing unfolds through the rest of the biblical narrative. So let me just walk you through the whole Bible quickly um, in the next few minutes. We don't have time for, but let me do it. God deals with individuals and he loves them, right? But we have overplayed that. He calls them into communities. He works through individuals, but always also through the lives of other people and the context of their relationships with other people. Just Take a walk through your Bible tonight if you disagree. We see no truly isolated people, not in the context of God's blessing anyway. Right? That's seen as a, a curse, as, as a removal of blessing. Okay? Adam, Adam is given a wife and a family unit and a people and a bloodline and communities to steward. Noah, when God saves Noah, he doesn't just save Noah, he saves a family unit. And what's the mandate given to them? Creates a community. Abraham, what's the promise to Abraham? You will be a great people. It will start with you, and you will populate the earth. Your, your blessing will be experienced in the way that you bless others. I will make you a great blessing to all the nations. That, that involves interacting with all of the nations. Israel, why did God choose Israel? It's not because they were brilliant, right? If you've read the text, they weren't. But he chooses a people, and that people, I love it. Go read the Old Testament. It's amazing. It's made up of families and clans and tribes. And, and these people come together in a nation, but they, they're communities of communities that God has designed for his purposes. Jesus lives in a community as a single man. He's born into a family and he honors that family. But then what does he do with his teaching? He says, anyone who does the will of the father is my, is my mother and my father and my sister and my brothers, right? He expands the definition of family. The New Testament, the New Testament is written to churches. People in community with one another. Most of us written to be like, guys, please get along, right? Be in this community together. And then heaven, what's heaven going to be like? I mean, I know Jesus has gone to prepare a room for me. I'm excited about that. Oh, I'm excited about my room. But as I read the heavenly text, I do realize I'm going to spend most of my time in heaven with other people. <laughs> and I think in my heavenly body, I'm going to enjoy that very, very much. But I think I'm also going to get some time in my room. But <laughs> it's going to be nations and tribes and people groups gathered around the throne. Not individuals in isolation. People in community. And yet, right, we know and experience the tension that says we deeply desire relationship. We deeply desire meaningful community. We deeply desire connection with others. But all the while, we struggle to attain it. And the things that are supposed to give us life land up being some of our greatest sources of grief and angst and pain and ironically, loneliness and isolation. We need community, but we don't know how to make it work properly. And the church has been terrible at this. 
Lots of lonely people showing up at our door. They don't know what they want. What they want is some kind of experience of the eternal, which is God, and they want a community. And what do we run? Programs. And leave them isolated. And don't give them a glimpse of the eternal or a friendship group to support them. And then we go like, so are you going to tithe or not? Like, uh, uh, which one is it, right? Because this seems to be the measure of faithfulness in the Western church. Friends, sin erodes this. We know we need it. But it erodes this. Let's go back through it. It eroded all of these communities. None of these were ideal. Adam's family, well, the two first brothers were like, nah, right? Murder in the first family. Noah's community to respect the biblical characters of the Bible, but we're not supposed to worship them. Have you read the story of Noah's family? I, I don't know what happened on the ark. But by the time Noah gets out, he's day drinking, right? He, he's, he's had enough of his sons and in-laws. He's like, I'm just going to drink, right? That's the first thing I'm The first thing he does is like, let's make a vineyard. Let's go. Vineyard. There's strife from day one. I don't have to come back. I'm sorry. Uh, uh, Abraham? Abraham was great, except um, taking more wives out of his servants so that he could have kids and then pretending his wife was his sister not once but twice. <sighs> and then spending most of his adult life having to bail out his selfish nephew, Lot. His community wasn't easy. Israel, <laughs> there's whole books about it. Jesus' community, what's Jesus' community filled with? Doubters, strugglers, betrayers, and glory grabbers. The church, well, a lot of the New Testament is spent just trying to get people to get along. Jews and Greeks, please get along. Slave and free, come on, guys, seriously. Euodia and Syntyche, ladies, please get along. You're my fellow partners in the gospel. Please, please, please get along. Sin and selfishness and a number of other things land up getting in the way of what we know we need. I'm going too long. The Bishop N.T. Wright says this. He says, from the most intimate relationship to those on the largest scale, we find the same thing. We all know that we are made to live together, but we all find that doing so is more difficult than we had imagined. And it is within these settings that we find the natural characteristic signs of human life. Laughter and tears. We find each other funny. We find each other tragic. We find ourselves and our relationships funny and tragic. This is who we are. This is the great tension of life in community. Friends, sin impacts us not just individually, but collectively, relationally, structurally, even in the communities that we form. And yet we still crave that relationship and long for the comfort it brings, even with the risk of the pain it can bring because of sin or the tension. But friends, we're made for that. And it's worth pressing through the hurt. It's worth pressing through the doubts. It's worth pressing through the disappointments. I know you have me. I know you have me. You're made for this. It's part of what the divine impulse that God breathed into us. So tonight, I want to pause here for a second. I actually have much more in this section, but I want to pause here for a second. And here's what I want to do. Is this okay? I barely know you, so this might be invasive. But what if we get into kind of groups just naturally clumped around where we are? And I've got a, I've got a couple of discussion questions for you, and then I'm going to come up in a moment once you've wrestled through some of those. 
and I'm going to give us a couple of prayer points to get us going before I jump into session two. Is that okay? Is that, yeah? Amen. Amen. Okay, praise the Lord. No response is a good response. Either the, the rapture has taken place, which would be super awkward because I'm still here, um, or there's a broad agreement, okay? So in groups of three, four, five, I'm not legalistic. I'm not a Galatian legalist, right? I, I have, I've already told you I have no uh, opinion on group size. Just make it workable in your area. I'll answer these two questions. Why do you think we are more able to effectively reflect God's image in, our, in community than we are on our own, right? Why is that part of the design? Why is that how we reflect God more effectively? And then secondly, so I only spend a couple of minutes there, everyone talk a little bit, and then what are some of the obstacles that we face that keep us from living the, the kind of life and community that God calls us to? Is that okay? Clear as mud? Right, in your groups. Praise the Lord. Some of you stayed. Um, so we said in that first session that people need other people, right? That, uh, that, that community is natural. It's what we were made to flourish in, that God made us for community. But sin makes it difficult. We see glimpses of how it can be done by the power of the Holy Spirit. Um, and we reckon that it's worth, come on in guys. And um, we reckon that it's worth, press, worth pressing through anyway. Here's the danger though, especially on a weekend like this, especially on a Friday night, this could possibly feel like just more that's demanded of you. Some of you might be doing the arithmetic already in your head going like, dude, I'm pretty busy, right? And my life is pretty demanding and church is a section of my life and I like it and I enjoy it, but I've got very little to give. And now it feels like you're gonna be asking me to give more because somehow that's my great design purpose. But, but, but what if we flipped that on its head? What if we saw some of the patterns in scripture that said that it's not that you need to just give to something, it's that if you don't, that something cannot give to you. What if God actually had something for you in community? Not just you for community, but community for you. I mean, how is it good for us in our walk with Jesus Christ to be in genuine community with others? Well, one of the obvious ways is that it helps us to actually live out the mandate of the church, right? The mandate of the church, every church's mission statement is the same. It's Matthew 28, it's the Great Commission. It's go therefore, make disciples um, of all nations, baptizing them, teaching them to obey all that I've commanded you and behold, I'm with you to the end of the age. The instruction to make disciples assumes that there will be other people around you, right? How else are you going to make disciples? There's no other way for you to obey the command other than in community with other people. But we haven't drawn out a good path of what discipleship looks like. Um, hidden right there in that instruction is a whole bunch of different things. Make, mature, multiply. Make disciples, take people who weren't believers, make them believers, right? Teach them to obey everything that I have commanded you means that they should, um, uh, multi that they should mature, they should grow in the faith. Uh, uh, obedience should mark them increasingly so, and then that go is the thing that holds that all together, they should then multiply. And so make, mature, multiply believers. Uh, and, and so we, we kind of try to live this in life, but here's what we've done. We've removed discipleship from the primary strategy of the church. And what we've created in church is another form of um, 
possible or voluntary associative community that you can choose. You can do travel ball or, and you can do church. And when it's a coin toss between the two, well, my kids are going to want to do travel ball more than they're going to want to do church. And so that's the way we make those decisions. We make it around the margins that we have available for us, right? I'm not saying baseball is evil. I'm just saying uh, cricket is a superior game in every way. Um, and so... <laughs> Um, that's the game they play on Harry Potter, right? Um, and so, uh, <laughs> which is how most people view cricket. That's that witch thing, right? Um, but friends, that's how we make these decisions. And then as pastors, it's very frustrating because then you're trying to put more programs in and people are too busy for programs, but then they're saying, Pastor, I don't feel like I grow. How do they think you're going to grow? Because you're going to preach the paint off the walls every Sunday. And they're going to pay attention for 15 minutes out of your 45-minute best effort. And somehow, somehow by osmosis, they're going to grow to be more like Jesus when that's the only experience that they have of life-on-life discipleship. And then we sit back and we wonder why our churches and why our own spiritual lives get such poor fruit. A friend of mine um, called Brad a few years ago drew me this graph, this picture, and and it drew to mind straight away to me why we were being so ineffective in a life of community and why we were being so ineffective at a life of discipleship. Can you guys see over there? This is going to be mind-blowing. So you want to be able to see. So, <laughs> Jesus, help. Take the wheel. No. Take another wheel. <laughs> you guys see it? It's like the Trinity. This is funny. Why, Brandon? Why? Thank you. Okay. So on this axis here, you've got um, kind of number of people, right? So number of people in a community. And on this axis here, you've got spiritual maturity. How are they actually maturing in the faith? The idea of the church is to move people forward. People in churches occur in three broad categories, right? They, they occur in baby believers or unbelievers, right? And so that would be the first one here. Let's just call them babies, all right? No one outside the church will see this. Um, that's right. You've heard of it? Maturing believers, and then you get multiplying believers, right? So these are your leaders. In every church, you're going to have a certain number of people that make up your congregation in each kind of sector, right? And there's different ways, actually, to grow each group of people. Uh, Here's kind of what a healthy church should look like in a regular context. It's not always possible amongst the unreached and, and all sorts of different things. Is that you should have some unbelievers, right? And you should have some baby believers because we're supposed to be making disciples. So (laughs) someone you should believe um, outside of our children. We should be baptizing some people. And so you should have some of them. The bulk of the church is probably going to be in there. And then you need some leaders as well. Here's what I've realized. This group here is where we've been satisfied to direct all of our programs in church life. Are they believers? They kind of not sinning dramatically in public ways. And so the pastor's job becomes keep this group happy. Keep them coming back. 
preach well, make the band good, make youth programs good, make your outreach good, but not too demanding, right? Because we've got very busy lives. Make church life vibrant, but not too busy because we've got travel ball. We've got all sorts of things going on. And just feed these folks right here and just keep them here. But what I realized when Brad showed me is that these people, the best way for them to move forward actually is life-on-life life community. Services are great. It's not your primary way of moving these people towards the right, to where they're multiplying. You know what they need? Other disciples, right? And so your goal with these people is win them to Christ and then get them in community. If you want to direct programs, you want to direct outreaches, you want to direct um, uh, kind of uh, extravagant things that are, that are hugely programmatic and expensive, direct them here. These people are brought in and sent out through programs. And so you need a leadership development program to send them out the door. You need some kind of program to invite people in. But then the whole goal, once you get them in, the whole way that you're going to mature them and make them into multipliable disciples is in a life of discipleship. The problem is the Western church especially has spent our whole life trying to keep these people comfortable. Instead of trying to disciple them, and get them out the door so that they'll go get you these people, right? And the way this happens is life on life. Sermons are great. I, I'm, it's my job. <laughs> it's what I'm paid to do. But you know what really transforms people? Long obedience in the same direction walked out with other believers who can confront them on sin, who can lovingly encourage them and strengthen their hands in God, who can pray for them regularly, who can know them, who can see them. A pastor from a stage can only do so much in terms of moving these people forward, and it's hard, and so we gave up. <laughs> and so we made the church about keeping these people satisfied, and we wonder why we never see new converts. We're not seeing people baptized. We wondered why we don't have a leadership pipeline. That's why. That's why. Take a minute. Sketch out quickly in your notebook the church community that you're part of. What does it look like? What does your graph look like? Are there any? Is it super skinny? A lot of people get super skinny. Right? I've got no, no, no new believers. We've got same old saints who've been here forever. We've got no leaders. No one's taking any risk. Uh, that's a warning sign for discipleship in your community. Okay? Take a second, sketch that out, and then I'll move on, and I'll show you how community moves these people forward. Any questions on that? It was worth the wait, eh? Or it's the Shekinah glory of the Lord. <laughs> Just a light, huh? Well, that's a letdown. Man, that explains a lot of my church experiences. Okay, you got your graph? That's something you can discuss at home. All right? 
How are we going to move people forward in community? How is community good for us in our pursuit of Christ? Let me do this quickly. There are hundreds of places we could go to look at how community helps us in our discipleship. Let's look at a couple. First, from the writer to the Hebrews. If I got stuck on a desert island, they allowed me to only take one book of the Bible. I would take Hebrews. I know it's a strange situation. Why am I on an island? Why is there such a strict rule about you can only have one book of the Bible? I don't know. But if that was the case, I would take Hebrews. It gives you this wonderful biblical theology. It's hugely Christocentric. It ties your whole Bible together. But the writer um, of the Hebrews is writing to a distracted and persecuted and tired church. They kind of want to give up. They're like, ah, we can't win the culture war, um, uh, and, and we're, we're in the minority, and it's really, really hard to be holy in this context and in this culture. What do we do? And the writer of the Hebrews, who we don't know who it is, writes them. Look what he says in Hebrews 3, 12 to 15. He says, take care, brothers. And just so you know, the ESV um, makes brothers there. That, that, that Greek word is a delphoi. It's a communal word. It can mean brothers and sisters, right? And so not every pronoun um, uh, in the scripture can be either gender. A delphoi can. All right, and so take care, brothers and sisters, lest there be in any of you an evil and unbelieving heart. Who's he talking to? A church. And what's he saying? Lurking in the church will be unbelief. There'll be people who really have given up on faith. They, they don't know how to do it anymore. And what does that lead to? Leading you to fall away from the living God. What's the alternative to that? Look at this, communal, but exhort one another. He doesn't say, you read this and you be exhorted in your private relationship with Jesus. He says, exhort one another. How often? Every day, as long as it is called today. Why? That none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Do you see this community? What are they doing? They're watching each other going, so-and-so is losing faith. So-and-so really needs to be exhorted. So-and-so really needs to be encouraged. And as long as today is called today, I'm going to call them today. Because that's my job in moving them forward in the path of discipleship. And I can see them being deceived by sin. Now, you can watch this happen in people's lives. I've watched it happen in, it happen in friendship groups in my own family. This pattern of the deceitfulness of sin takes a long time. And if no one intervenes... For we have come to share in Christ. Share in Christ. His blessing is communal. If indeed we hold our original confidence to the end, as it is said, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart as in the rebellion. Here's the observation. Community helps us keep believing with urgency. Right? It's like that journey song. Just don't stop. Right? Believing. Right? You've got you to, no, Okay, in Austin, that would have slayed. Um, people are like, throwback, classic rock music reference. This guy's my guy, all right? Um, but community helps us to keep believing with urgency. What's happening to the recipients of this letter is that they've started to experience opposition. Following Jesus has started to become difficult, and so some of them are falling away. What does the writer say? Watch out for each other. You're not just, listen, you're not just responsible for your own walk. You have a role to play in the life of your community. Um, when we aren't urgent in our belief and when we aren't patient in our waiting, then we give in to unbelief. And what do we need? We need someone who will come and exhort us. Friends, we need community to catch us in our drift away and to remind us. I've found that people drift away slowly. That's what I found. 
And I found that when people finally realize that they've drifted, they go like, man, I knew I should have, I knew I should have reached out. Why didn't you? <laughs> because we've built a program. We hope the sermon will catch it. Or just a magic moment in worship or a pastoral follow-up. Isn't that their job? I mean, what does he do every day? I don't do anything. This is, this is what I do. The first, the first time I've worked this week, all right? <laughs> Let's move on. Look at what the writer to the Hebrews says in Hebrews 10, 24 to 25. He says, and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and to good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. Secondly, community helps us to be stirred up. The writer says, hey, in light of all that we have in the gospel, which is what comes before in chapter 10, Hebrews 10 is magnificent. In light of all of that, don't get stuck and don't become still. You know what you need? A churning. You need someone to come into your life and stir up all that silt so that it doesn't settle on the bottom, so that you are reminded that you are called towards love and good works. And one of the primary ways you will do that is by ensuring that you keep getting together and keep spending time together. This is a great description of why we gather weekly. Why do we do that? So that you would stir one another up, so that people would come in as kind of like still dark, you know, ponds of water where all of the silt is, is rested to the bottom and there's no life. And what do you do? You stick your hand in and you mix it all up and you stir it up and you give it a shake and you go, remember Jesus. Remember how good he has been. And as we do this for each other in regular gatherings, this starts to bring a community life of faith and vibrance. Okay, look quickly at what Paul said to the Romans in chapter 12. The Romans had a tougher church experience than you, right? Uh, I mean, there might be some liberals around here. There's not many lions. Huh? It's a good line. <laughs> Tweet that, right? Like, okay. They both start with L. It's clear. No? Okay. They were being opposed in major ways. And what is Paul's message to the Romans? Hey, guys, stay together. Stay together. Keep fighting. Keep persevering. Keep going. Why? Christ has called you for something great. In Romans 12, you can read this when you get home. It's astonishing. Look at verse 3. It says, For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think. Oh, if the world embraced that wisdom. Oh, if the church embraced that wisdom. Imagine we were a countercultural community of faith where people didn't think of themselves more highly than they ought to think. But to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. Here's the next observation. Community helps us to live with grace-fueled humility. Our tendency is going to be towards narcissism and pride. It will manifest either through an arrogance or it will manifest through chronic insecurity, but it will manifest if we are self-obsessed. And community keeps us from being self-obsessed. And Paul starts with the tension of grace and an honest self-assessment. He's saying, hey, the fact that you haven't earned anything in terms of salvation, but are deeply loved by God, this ought to make you the most humble people in the world who don't need to seem more important than they are. Why? Jesus died for them. And so the trifles of the world's approval do not count for much. Paul says a failure to do this is a lack of sobriety. He says, no, think with sober judgment. What is he saying? If you don't do this, you're not acting sober. 
Uh, it is a thinking that is distorted in the same way as drunkenness. The scholar Robert Mount says that the Romans were in danger of becoming egoholics. Doesn't that sound like that was written today? And in our communities, addicted to a sense of self. And it's where many of us find ourselves. It's the opposite of having an understanding of grace. Grace, as Timothy Keller reminds us, doesn't make us think less of ourselves. It does, however, make us think of ourselves less. And that is required for a flourishing community. That is a liberating humility that would lead to great joy. Friends, some of us actually think very little of ourselves but we do think of ourselves an awful lot. <laughs> we hate ourselves, but we're self-obsessed. That destroys community. Absolutely destroys community. You know why? You'll pretend. You'll pretend. And then you'll be mad at people when they love the pretense because it's not really you. And so you'd set up a game with your community that's impossible uh, for them to win. When I sober-mindedly consider the grace of Jesus Christ, I realize two things. I am a nobody who is wrecked without Jesus Christ. And two, I am a blood-bought child of God who is beloved by him. When I remember that, freedom. I need people in community to remind me. All right, let's go, verse four. For as in one body we have many members and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. Isn't that an astonishing verse? Paul's saying you belong to the other people in your community. That's incredible. Having gifts that differ, that's big. Some schools of theology would try to give us all the same gift. No, you've got gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. Let us use them. If prophecy, don't worry, Baptist, it's gonna be fine, in proportion to our faith. <laughs> If service in our serving, the one who teaches in their teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Here's the point. Community helps us to remember that we have gifts and that we must use them in the body. Community helps us to remember that we have gifts and that we must use them. Here's where we see the impulse of Paul so clearly. He cares less about which gift you have. I love that about Paul. There's only one that he says, if you want to have one, it's prophecy, right? And we go like, well, we don't believe in that one, so now what? Right? And he's like, well, then I've got nothing for you, okay? Take administration. You can have that one. We're like, good, excellent. I'll write some stuff down. Um, we'll talk about spiritual gifts the next time Brandon invites me. Um, and so I'm excited for that day, uh, even if he isn't. But uh, Paul doesn't seem that interested about which gift you have. He's more interested about the fact that you ought to be using them for the common good and that they ought to be multifaceted and different. Why? Because people are different. Again, there's no room for boasting or bragging than in gift because the gift of, is a grace. If it's prophecy, then good. If it's service, brilliant. Teaching, go for it. Exhortation, exhort. Giving, spend it. Leading with zeal, mercy, then with cheerfulness. And here is something interesting, friends, listen, because I've been a pastor long enough to know what this text does. In the New Testament, we'll often have examples of varying gifts like this. They are always in the context of people actually serving. You know what we never have in the New Testament? A gifts test or survey designed by Paul. We, you know, it's like, 
comes after 2 Corinthians, 3 Corinthians. It's called Gifts by Paul. And you take the test and you discover you're purple, right? And you're like, excellent. I mean, I've, I've done these things. And then what happens is people line up and they go, is there a place in this church for someone with a purple gift mix? And the pastor's like, no, I don't, I don't, I don't know. I don't know what that is, right? And so uh, I, I'm not entirely sure. Now, I'm not saying those tests are wrong or unhelpful. I know some people have benefited them for, uh, from them for a great deal. What I am saying is that I think Paul would be saying this. Listen, hear me cl clearly on this. You have a gift, at least one. The purpose of the gift of all of them is service. And so if you aren't serving as you wait to figure out which gift you have, then you are totally missing the point and purpose of the gracious gift that's given to you in the first place. And the best way for you to figure out your gift is to serve. Because <laughs> it's beautiful when people do. Right? That, that's how you figure these things out. I see lots of people in churches going like, well, I've got this gift. And so until you start this program for me and my friends that I can use that gift, then you get nothing from it. No, no, no. It's not for you. It's for the body. <laughs> use it, right? Use it. As you serve, amazing things will happen. When we see this, friends, it's an astonishing thing. I got invited to um, watch the Johannesburg Symphony Orchestra a few years ago um, by a friend. She knew I was a musician, and she was like, you're going to love this. And so I donned a black tux and the whole thing. Thought I was like a little short James Bond. And um, I was very excited. It's like James Bond and the Hobbit kind of mixed up uh, together. And so uh, I, I went along to the, to, to the orchestra and I said, and I've never been before, right? I listened to rock and roll. And so I thought Led Zeppelin was the greatest thing ever. And so now I'm watching an orchestra. I'm like, okay, this is confusing. And they all came out, like a bunch of little March of the Penguins. Um, and they, they came out with their instruments and they sat there in the pit. And I was sitting in the second row and I was so excited. And I held Sue's hand. I was like, this is going to be great. And then they all just started making an absolute cacophony. I didn't realize they were tuning, right? I was like, I thought they would have done that before. That's uh, before the people who paid the money to come hear the song. And so they were like, they got to the end. I was like, I mean, that's abstract, but it's interesting. Jazz gig, clearly, okay, that's, that's interesting. And then the conductor got up and he tapped his little. And as he lifted his hands and as he brought them down, they all played together their own part according to a sheet of music. And I was undone. I was like, each of those things on their own sounded terrible. When they were all playing together as they were supposed to be playing, wonder and glory and magnificence. Why? Doing what the Creator designed them to do, the church is the same. When we serve, oh, 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 oh. And we play our part. All right, verse 9. Hurry. Sorry, guys. So long-winded. Verse 9. Only pastors say that. The rest of you, you know, people are like, don't take your time. You got me all excited about sweats and carbohydrates. Like, let's, let's, let's stick with the important things. Verse 9. Oh, I love this phrase. Let love be genuine. Literally means let love not be hypocritical literally means love cannot wear a mask. You can't love and be fully loved if the person that people are trying to love isn't you. You live with the continual tension of knowing that they don't know the real you. Friends, we live with a tremendous display of faith in the gospel when we don't have to pretend to have it all together. 
Not only that, we display love when we let people see who we really are. That's where we test to see if we actually believe the gospel. I've realized recently that I've spent most of my life, I'm 41 years old, right? I've lived most of my life terrified at the thought of what other people think of me. And so you spend all of your effort, all of your energy inventing a caricature of yourself that you don't even like. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Isn't this interesting? We expect the text to say, let love be genuine, so live and let live. Let love be genuine, so you be you, boo, right? That's what we think Paul's going to say. Follow your heart. Do what feels right. Encourage others to do the same. That's genuine love, isn't it? Right? Paul actually says, no, in order to be loving, devote yourself to holiness. You want to be really loving? Hate evil. That's a good place to start. Verse 10. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Oh, outdo one another in showing honor. You want to compete for something in the church? Compete for who shows the most honor, not who receives the most honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Next one. Community helps us to live lives that impact there's a lot going on here, friends. I could have spent the whole weekend in those five verses. There's 13 exhortations, but there's one theme. Here's the theme of those 13 exhortations. The way you live out your faith isn't just about you. It impacts other people too. Your faith or lack thereof is contagious in community. Zeal is contagious. So is cynicism. So is cynicism. Forgiveness is contagious. So is bitterness. Service is contagious, so is selfishness. Transparency, humility is contagious, so is pretending. What are you teaching other people? You're in this thing here. You're pulling other people along with your life. Are they moving? What are you showing them? What an incredible text. All right, verse 14, I'm nearly done. Classic pastor lie. I love Paul in Philippians 3. He says, one thing I do. And then he goes on to list two things, which are actually kind of four things. It's just such a pastor thing to do. I've got one more thing to say. And like, no, you don't. Bless those who persecute you. Oh. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. We good at this? The begrudging like, oh, they're traveling again. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to what is honorable in the sight of all. Oh, I love this verse. This is a good Twitter verse. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Don't go picking fights. There's going to be enough fights. Don't look for one. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Next observation. Community helps us to practice lives of rebellious empathy and rebellious mercy. Why would I call this rebellious? Well, look at our culture, friends. Does this not read like the opposite of our culture? 
One of the clearest ways we can push back against the culture in our day and age is by living like these people, because the culture won't have any idea what to do with people who live like us. We've adopted the means of the world's culture of power. And we wonder why people are rejecting evangelicalism. Because we look just like the world. In a world of vengeance, bless those who persecute you. In a world full of desperate covetousness, rejoice with those who are winning. In a world operating from a position of karma and point scoring, weep with those who weep. In a world where attention is derived from discord, seek to live in harmony. In a world where success moves you further and further away from the lowly, seek to push in the opposite direction. In a world full of self-promotion, never to be too sure of your own smartness. Friends, everywhere I go, Christians are nervous that we are losing the culture war. Can I encourage you tonight? We're not losing the culture war. We lost. <laughs> and I'm not sure we should have been in it in the first place. Well, not in the way that we tried to do it anyway. We tried to fight the culture with the weapons of the world. Control and power and dominance. Want to get back in the fight where the church should really be in a way that actually brings fruit? How about we live for a different culture? A kingdom culture. And all of these are small acts of tyranny and insurrection against the principalities and powers of this world. And God can use them to turn cities upside down. He did it in Ephesus. He can do it again. He did it in Rome. He can do it again. But we can't expect to live like the world and influence the world. And you can't expect to do it on your own. You're going to need a community to remind you. I'm nearly done. Verse 21. Do not be overcome by evil. But overcome evil Community helps us to overcome. It helps us to overcome. I know this sounds like an incredibly high call, and truth be told, we will fail most days. But the call is to keep going and to get up when we fall down, to try again when we fail, to forgive when we are disappointed, to press again when it looks too hard, and to do that with other people. Who can we look to to help us live this way? Friends, Jesus doesn't call us to something that he didn't himself do. Jesus is our example and model for real gospel community. He modeled community for us by submitting to the Father, even though he was co-equal with him in eternity. Jesus hung out with the lowest of the low. Jesus lovingly called out people for their sin. He wasn't a coward. Jesus forgave those who sinned against him multiple times. Jesus inconvenienced himself to the point of laying down his life. Jesus persevered to the end. He modeled loving community for us. He is the motivation for community because he gave us a grace that we don't deserve. And he leaves behind a church to model to the world what he is like. And I promise you, friends, I promise you, I promise you, he gifts the Holy Spirit to people who try to live this way. I've seen it again and again. Churches in contexts that are so hard, living radical lives of faith. What's the common factor? Holy Spirit doing some radical in their midst, empowering them, just like he did in Acts 3, just like he did in Acts 4. Just imagine, just, I mean, what, there's 70 of us? Just imagine the power of just this community of people coming before God and asking him to help us be more like this. And then saying, God, we will do whatever you call us to do next. Help us to be people of the kingdom people of community, people of discipleship, people of the way of Jesus, the people
people we were always supposed to be in the first place, I believe we can see it again. I believe we can see it again. I'm going to pray for us, and we're going to finish tonight with worship because I'm praying that the Holy Spirit would give us courage even tonight. So the band can come up. We're going to sing songs of praise and adoration as we close. But will you just ask the Holy Spirit to fill you? You know that Paul tells the, the, the church in Ephesus, be filled with the Holy Spirit. He's writing to Christians when he says it. And so they got the Holy Spirit for salvation. And he says, you know what you need today? You need to be filled with the Holy Spirit again. And you know what you need tomorrow? You need to be filled with the Holy Spirit again. And you know what they need the day after? Yeah, you got it. Be filled with the Holy Spirit. Be ongoingly filled. And so maybe just before we sing, why don't you just pray? Father God, I'm yours. Why don't you fill me with your Holy Spirit to live the way you want me to live? Let's pray that he'll give us courage to do exactly that. And let's sing of his, his truth and his grace and his mercy. Father God, thank you so much for these people. Thank you for your church, this precious manifestation of the bride of Christ across a couple of different congregations in the same part of town, sharing the same building on Sundays. What a treasure. What a remarkable thing. Lord, wouldn't it be the wisdom of the kingdom for you to take a little group like this and to birth a spirit movement of radical Christian community that shocks a city? That's the kind of thing you love to do. <laughs> but that's not the wisdom of the world. That's the wisdom of the kingdom. And so, Father, we have no ability to follow through on any of this. We can't do it. But by your Holy Spirit, we can live the life that you've called us to live. So empower these people, embolden these people, even as it's late on a Friday night. Can you pour out your Holy Spirit as we sing to you now? Give us great courage to live the way that you